Let's take our Bibles together. We're looking to 1 Timothy chapter 2 today. So we're just continuing verse by verse through this great epistle. I don't mind telling you this is one of the passages that many a pastor, including this one, is tempted to one, two, skip a few. This is one that we might normally try to skip, uh, but letters and books of the Bible aren't meant to be skipped in sections. They're meant to be verse by verse. If I send you a letter, don't skip around. Read the letter, and I'll do the same for you. And that's what God is saying to us in these texts. And uh, this is a good one for us to just pause and consider what God has to say on this very important subject. Why would this headline about Saddleback University cause us to either celebrate or maybe even denounce or just ignore it altogether? Here's the headline. Largest church in SVC ordains three women as pastors. In the 21st century, does it matter that churches ordain women to serve as pastors? Well, according to the Bible, it does. And you and I need to pause and just think through in a biblical way what God has to say about this and the instruction that he gives to churches. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and following is where we're going to be. He writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works." Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control." Before I became a pastor, I was a realtor, and my family was involved in that business. In real estate, it's all about location, location, location. When we're talking about the Bible and teaching the Bible and reading the Bible, studying the Bible, it's all about context, context, context. Everything is relative to context. So it might appear to be redundant, but we need to go back a little bit and catch the context of this passage. Because if you're not careful, or if I'm not careful, we'll read this text and we will read things into it out of context that will make us miss the mark. So let's just review back for a minute. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul begins this part of the letter by saying, First of all, then, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 3 says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our God, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Now, if you're looking for the context of chapter 2, it's that verse. That God desires all people to be saved, and God made the provision of our salvation, and that is that he sent his one and only son to be the mediator. The God-man became the mediator between God and men. 
He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In verse 8, I desire then, catch that context, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that a woman should adorn herself in respectable apparel, but with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. It's evident from the passage that God wants people to be focused on the gospel as he is focused on the gospel. That's what this whole text is about that we're reading this Sunday and the, the following Sundays. Our attention on salvation should be apparent. It should be apparent in how we pray and how we present ourselves. And Paul is saying even how we dress. So that's the focus of today's passage. Let me give you two summaries. The first is this, that according to the Bible, the church should be full of men who pray, who live righteously, and who are gracious so that all people might be saved. So speaking directly to men, he's saying, here's what you as men ought to be doing. You ought to lead the congregation in prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that prayer is exclusively for men. Of course not. But what he's saying is that men ought to have a role of praying. And the praying ought to be evident. In fact, you can't have salvation in your midst. You can't be a gospel presenter with impact without prayer. He's telling us to be people of prayer, specifically men. Be men of prayer. Pray everywhere. You lead out. If anybody's going to lead our family in prayer, it's going to be me. Pray everywhere, Randy. In all places, pray. So men, be leaders by being prayerful. And he says, lift up holy hands. Now, that's a posture of worship. It's a posture. It's an expression. When I'm lifting up holy hands, there are multiple ways that I do it, but often I'm lifting with my palms up. I'm saying, God, there is nothing I'm clinging to in this world. I offer all things to you, and I receive all things from you. That's, that's what I'm communicating. Or sometimes I just need to give him the awe that he is due. I need to express to him that you are everything to me. And so he's saying lift up holy hands, but I really don't think he's talking about posture here. I think he's talking about let your hands be holy. Let your life be marked with holiness. Again, this is a drive towards the gospel, that you and I would be focused on the gospel as God is focused on the gospel. If you're gospel-centric, if you're gospel-focused, you're going to be a person of prayer, and you're going to live out your life with righteousness so that you have holiness about you. Your hands are holy. What you do, you have determined to do it in a holy fashion. So he says, pray, lift up holy hands, and be free of anger and quarreling. I call that being gracious. In the world today, there is a quick anger, isn't there? There's a quickness to temper. There is a, a, an easy burn-up way about people today. They're just looking for the fight. They're just looking for the opportunity to vent. And Paul is saying, if you're going to be gospel-oriented, you have to be different than that. 
You have to be so filled with God's grace, so marked by his reconciling work that it's evident in how you live out the expression of life to other people. So pray everywhere. Let your life be holy. Lift up holy hands and let your life be a demonstration the opposite of the world, which is full of anger and quarreling. Let your life be a demonstration of the reconciling work of the Holy Spirit in you and the ministry of the Spirit that he has given to you. That is to be a man who is gospel-driven, well, Paul wants us as men to be given in that way. Now, accordingly, to the Bi- in the Bible it says the church should be full of women who attempt not to draw attention to themselves, but are attempting to draw attention to Christ our Lord, the mediator. And so all that talk about how you wear your hair and the kind of jewelry you wear and the kind of clothes that you're wearing, he's not being the monitor of your clothing. He's saying, what is the drive? What are you calling attention to, ladies? Is your purpose to call attention to yourself, especially when you come in the church house? Is it to call attention to your he- yourself with your hair fixed in a certain way? In the, in the modern world, the, the up-to-dos would braid their hair. Is it to put the gold and the pearls on so that you're drawing attention to yourself? Now, what he's saying is, in the house of God, your attention ought to be on God. And everybody else's attention ought to be on God. You're coming into the presence of God. So so let it be that you're drawing attention and making much of Jesus. So he's saying you're doing that by your demeanor. Demeanor, I'm meaning how how you demonstrate yourself, what you're trying to communicate about yourself. Ladies, when you're standing in your closet on Sunday morning or Saturday evening trying to figure out what to wear, what is the motive for your choice? That's what he's asking. What's the motive? Have you remembered that you're coming into the presence of God with other people? And does your dress demonstrate that? How you fixed your hair, the jewelry that you chose. Now, certainly you want to be presentable, but he's saying, let it be that you are making your priority God, that you're making your priority Christ and drawing attention to him. And let it be demonstrated not just the way you're appearing but the things that you are doing, your good works. One of the most challenging roles that I have in the marriage is to be the, conf- the fashion consultant to my wife. Sometimes she invites me into her lair, the closet, <laughs> and she'll say with cunning sweetness, hey, Rand, will you come and let me show you something? And I will slowly but soberly make my way into that closet, knowing that she is about to pose to me a series of questions for which I will get every one of them wrong. (laughs) And if by chance I happen to get remotely close to the right answer, babe, that looks wonderful on you. She goes, oh, you're just saying that. (laughs) So... There are times that Kay needs a second opinion, and there are many times that I need a second opinion. Once they stop making granimals for men, I'm like out. You know, they don't, they don't make clothes that match so easily for guys. Choosing our clothes is a big deal, isn't it? Because our clothes help us present ourselves. You may not give conscious thought to it, but you have chosen your clothes in a way that presents who you are and what you're wanting to communicate at any given time. 
You're choosing that. Unless you're going to Walmart, of course, on a Saturday afternoon, and then it's like every logical thought goes out the window, and you can just wear whatever you want to wear. But really, those people are communicating. I say those people. We are communicating, aren't we? (laughs) Those people, because you won't find me at Walmart on a Saturday afternoon. Something about this new building that just digs out the treasures in me, doesn't it? But here Paul is writing specifically to women, saying to ladies, choose your clothes well, because what you do and how you present yourself communicates your heart about Jesus. You say, well, I don't think it's in that way. And what Paul is saying is, oh, you should. You should, because though you may not be giving it thought, other people are thinking it about you. What you're wearing is communicating something about you. As you come together for corporate worship, dress like somebody who has come to worship the Lord and be appropriate in that. Now, Jesus is not going to be impressed with your finest clothes or your lavish jewelry. That's what Paul is saying here. So don't dress to impress because Jesus is not impressed by that. Why, the one who made it all, sustains it all, owns it all, he's not impressed by us wearing it all. And he isn't going to be honored if you wear your workout clothes to a place where worshipers are coming together to focus on Christ. So he's saying, choose well. The perfectly dressed woman considers how she wants to present herself in her attire with godliness and good works. So here's the central idea of these verses. Both men and women have position in the church and they are positioned well to impact the church and others for the gospel of Jesus Christ and we should each be given to those roles. We must each determine to stay Christ-centered and gospel-focused, fighting against self-centeredness and even against self-promotion and focusing on how we're communicating and presenting Jesus by what we do, what we wear, and our demeanor. It's important. All right, but now let's focus the rest of our time, the latter half of this period, on the latter text, which is probably where you're most interested let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And that right there. Uh, some of you are like, okay, now pause right there, Randy, because uh, that's, that's a little much. And the context is not too much at all. And by the way, that statement about a woman learning quietly and with all submissiveness, that same statement could be read in other places to all people, all men and women. So he's not saying this doesn't, equate to what God expects of us he expects all of us men and women be quiet be still and know that I am God when you're baptized you're communicating a submissiveness aren't you you're responding in obedience and you are dying to self that's what that image is by faith you have died to self you can't get more submissive than dying to self so this is not atypical of what all Christians are called to do but in the context he's speaking in this part of the passage specifically to women 
telling women, learn quietly with all submissive, that is with humility, listen to what is being instructed to you by your pastors, your elders, your teachers, listen to that, and with submission, which means to put yourself under, to obey. So he's saying, learn, listen, and learn, and obey, and he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I'm not going to be able to get into verse 15, but we should get into this for some time in the future. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. And I don't think that salvation comes to women by them bearing children. I think what he's, he's saying there in the reference and the context of the wonder of God putting men and women together, women have a substantial role, a role that men can't touch, and childbearing is one of the great roles, probably the apex role for women. Only a woman can do that. Life is going to come not through men, but through the women. And he's elevating women in this point. And reminding them that they ought to be true to their faith, love, holiness, and self-control. But now, obviously, there's controversy to this text. But I just want to give you a little historical reference here. The controversy didn't start until about 50 years ago. In fact, up until that point, this text, the church, had no problem with it. In history, this is not a controversial text. It was in 1969 that there, all, there were papers that started to be brought forth from academia, and it was Christians uh, who were no longer taking this text, or maybe even so-called Christians, no longer taking this text at face value. For nearly 2,000 years, the church did not wrestle here. However, since 1969, when progressive revisionists motivated by now two feminist movements began to interpret these verses creatively or to renounce them altogether, there began to be controversy about it. Mainline denominations jumped on board pretty quickly and began to ordain women for their pulpits. Meanwhile, the Southern Baptist Convention experienced a resurgence of conservatism. Our denomination purposely began to describe the Bible as infallible and inerrant, merging those words into our faith documents so that everybody knew where we would stand. When other denominations progressively were moving away from a historical teaching of the Bible, we were doubling down on truth and authority. And I'm glad we did. I think perhaps the year 2021, that is coming to the surface again and perhaps this month coming up at the Southern Baptist Convention there will be more conversation about this text and how we as Southern Baptists will apply it by the year 2000 the Baptist faith and message which is our statement of faith among the denomination included these words in the statement while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to qualified, to men as qualified by Scripture. That statement describes complementarianism. It is a theological view that men and women have equal worth in complementary roles and responsibilities within the church and within family life. Now, obviously, the SBC added that to our statement because there was a controversy that had 
arisen and they needed to speak to the controversy they needed to take a stand on the controversy and they did and the stand that we took as a denomination as we are going with the bible we're going with god's word we're not swaying with the culture we're not swaying with the movements we're resting in the truth of god's word and we're going to kind of knuckle down right here this is where we're going to be the bible makes an emphatic statement forbidding women to teach or exercise authority over the church now today's culture is going to be surprised about the bible saying that and they are going to be appalled that you and i would actually believe that portion of the bible and there are going to be a lot of people that are going to doubt us and second guess us but we hold to these truths and why do we hold to these truths why 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 would god limit the pastoral duty and responsibility and position to men qualified men well let me first state the obvious this passage is not going to be popular with the world and i don't want to be flippant when i say this but this passage was not written to the world this is not an instruction about corporate leadership this is not an instruction about political leadership this is not an instruction for the world this is an instruction written specifically to the church about a very specific office the pastor the elder the the primary teacher over the congregation he's writing specifically to us so i know the world won't get it and the world might tweet about us and the scripture and all that but this isn't about the world this is about us this is a personal letter written to a pastor of a church who paul knew would help get that word out through the movement of the holy spirit so that all churches would come to understand this truth so this is not going to be popular with the church secondly i'll just mention this that some are going to say preacher you are late to the discussion suggesting that women's liberation has now given way to the liberation of the lgbtq plus community and that we have skipped right over the main arguments in the world by having this one again they'll say things like you're antiquated or you're a sexist for believing that part of the bible but my friends we are people of the bible we are people of god's holy word no matter how far the world removes itself from the truths of this book or the author of this book you and i are determined to remain steady from start to finish we believe every word of the bible not only have we been commanded to have that kind of faith but we have no reason to deny that this is an inerrant and infallible word from an immutable god there, there's no reason to counter that the whole world is shifty and the cultures are degrading into a more debased realm of darkness but god remains steady god is an undimming light of glory and he is the truth throughout the ages his word is eternal throughout the ages and so the ages move they come and go but god's word stays resolute it stays the same throughout the ages as the world progresses into more liberal expressions of sin we stand with god we stand with him because in him there is no variation or shadow due to change he's the same so we're just resting in that truth so my friends unless the church remains anchored in the bible it will drift away with current 
the currents of culture. Now let's just open this passage and just talk about it for a minute. Let me first just mention what this passage does not say. What does 1 Timothy 2 not say? Well, this passage does not give instructions to people outside the church. So uh, for the Margaret Thatchers out there in the world, this passage is not telling you you can't be a ruler. It's not written to you. For the corporate leaders of the world who are women, this passage is not written to you about your position and your job. If, if you're a churchgoer, if you're submitting to the word of Christ in the church, then this passage is for you. This passage does not allow men, by virtue of our gender, to exercise authority over women. That's not what this text is about. This is not about men having greater authority over women. That's not it at all. If you've got that in your mind, man, you are way out there. And I'm telling you, come back to the truth. Come back to God's instruction for us. This passage does not speak of the equality of men and women. God settled the equality of men and women all the way back in Genesis 1 where he said he made both man and woman, male and female, in his image. And the equality is settled there. God is not changing that. He started out with everyone being equal, made in his image, and it will continue like that. So this passage is not about that. This passage does not diminish the teaching ability of many women. Can I just say, and men, you ought to give me an amen on this. Can I say, thank God for women who he is gifted to be amazing teachers. Thank God for the teachers who are women at Meadowbrook. They teach incredibly well, and I learn from them. Thank God that we've got people like Priscilla in the church who will take Apollos to the side, who is a gifted speaker, and help him to understand the fullness of the gospel. She and her husband did that together. When you read about Priscilla and Aquila, sometimes you're reading Priscilla and Aquila, and sometimes you're reading Aquila and Priscilla. It just switches up the variant ways in which they're talked about because both of them were amazing teachers and did a great job at doing that, hosting the church in their home and helping others come to discover the truth. Thank God for teachers who are women. This passage does not preclude women and men from teaching one another and edifying one another. This isn't to say that women can't teach me. Hogwash, they can, and they often do. This passage is helping us to understand something entirely different. By the way, Paul says in Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, he doesn't qualify that, does he? He doesn't say teaching and admonishing, those of you who are men to men, women to women. He doesn't qualify that. He says when you're together as a congregation, when you're engaging in conversation admonish and teach one another edify one another and do it because the word of God is richly dwelling within you men and women encouraging and teaching God's word together I'm grateful for the biblical insights that many women bring to Meadowbrook so many of the women here have been lifelong students of the Bible and my ear is attentive to them all of our ears should be attentive to them they're incredible women I enjoy the biblical discussions that women have along with men in our life group hours. I enjoy the passionate ways in which women pray. Many of them have learned to pray the word of God. I'm in tune to that as you are as well. So there's a lot of things that this passage is not talking about. 
what is it that 1 Timothy 2 is talking about? What does it say? Well, the first thing that it says outright is that this passage commands pastors to teach the Bible to women. That doesn't mean it's exclusively taught to women, no. But he's saying, make sure that you are teaching women. You say, well, that's, that's a given. Well, not in the first century it wasn't a given, especially if you had a Jewish heritage. Why, women were not disallowed into the synagogue, but they were not encouraged to be in the synagogue either. They weren't denied access to the teaching, but they weren't sought out to be taught. And in this case, Paul is saying outright, you ought to teach women. You ought to engage them in the word. I should just remind you, in the first century, among the Roman Empire and among Judaism, women were not in high esteem. It was different for Jesus. Jesus viewed women incredibly differently. In fact, Jesus was constantly lifting up women. In case I need to remind you, Jesus had women in his discipleship. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Women were the first to be witnesses of his glorious resurrection. Women were told, go tell the men what you have seen. Jesus was elevating women. Jesus was instructing women. And Jesus was making sure that they were proclaiming truth about him, the resurrected Lord. This passage talks about that. It says, pastors, elders, make sure you're teaching women. But secondly, it says, there is order in which I want instruction in the church to be brought about. And that order in the church is you have qualified men designated as elders, pastors, teachers there within the church. And that order is consistent throughout the Bible. Every pastor in the New Testament is male. You won't find a single one that's female. And every pronoun referencing a pastor, elder, or teacher in the, in the church is always a masculine pronoun. Now again, until about 50 years ago, that was well understood and was not argumented. Uh, but now things are a little bit different because culture has shifted. So why does the Bible make a very specific demand that pastors be qualified men. Well, Paul is making it clear that the leadership roles in the church are not based on opinion, certainly not based on sexism, some bias in that way. He grounds the position of pastor as men in the creative order which God brought about all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And he goes back to that reference. If you're going to be in this text, you have to give the reference, the, the reason why Paul is making this statement. Now, let's review the sequence of events back in chapter 2 of Genesis. If you've zoned out on me and you thought, oh, man, I thought there were going to be fireworks today. I'm disengaging. Come back in, okay? Now, this is an important point. The second chapter of Genesis, here's the order. God is planting a garden, and he's placing Adam in the midst of that garden. And God brought forth all those living things in that garden. He planted every tree that was in the garden. And in the midst of the garden, he plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he plants a tree of life. 
Then God takes the man and he places him in the garden to work it and keep it, and he gives him instruction. You remember this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, we're talking about sequence of events, right? God gives his command. He gives his instruction to Adam. Then God says, it's not good for Adam, man, to be alone. I will make for him a helper. So he takes from Adam a bone, and he forms Eve from the bone of Adam, and he brings her to Adam. And Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And together they become one to steward the land. Now, did you get the sequence there? I'll put it to you in a linear fashion. God creates man, places him in the garden, and gives him his word, gives him a command. Then God determines with man, I'm going to provide for you a helper. In essence, he's going to say to Adam, she will be your helper, you instruct her of my word. And together the two of you will become one flesh and you will tend, care for, manage, or the biblical word, steward my creation. Now it was only then you turn the page to chapter 3 and the serpent is introduced. Now that order is very important because Paul's going to reference it back when he says, I want the people leading the church, I want the pastors and elders, the pastor teachers, I want them to be men. I mandate that they be men. That's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he references this order. That's incredibly important. Because if you don't get the order, then you'll say, well, God's sexist. And that church is narrow-minded. And sure, the people who are men who lead the church are saying it can only be men. No, no, no. It's been this way from the start. This was the order that God put in place. And when we come out of the order of God, things unravel very quickly. I I could show you that in a historical context with churches that have walked away from the primary focus of the church being the gospel. They've walked away from that. And the power of the gospel has been diminished because they pulled away from the order that God has instructed us. So God gave his word to Adam who Adam was to communicate it to Eve and together they would steward and exercise with obedience to God and have great fellowship with God and others in creation and themselves. But there's a disruption in there. Chapter three of Genesis is all about disrupting that order. In chapter three, the creature begins to rule Eve. The creature comes to Eve and begins to speak to her. Did God really say this? Oh, he knows that you'll be like him if you take of that. And Eve listens to the creature, and she desires it, desires to be like God, and she takes it, and she instructs her husband. Here, take some of this. He comes under submission to her word of take some of this, and he receives it himself, and he acts on it. By the way, when all of this exchange is happening between the creature and Eve, Adam is there. Adam is disengaged. Adam isn't leading. Adam isn't communicating. Here's what God said. Why are you listening to him? Adam's disengaged, and Adam is not ruling in the way that God has instructed him to rule, and he detaches from the order that God has instructed. And when he detaches, the disruption unfolds. So the first sin is really a departure from God's creative order. 
rather than communicating and leading Eve to follow God's instruction Adam heeded the voice of the woman coming under her authority now if you think that's not a big deal God reinforces the significance of the upheaval of creative order when he announces the judgment instead of speaking from Adam to Eve to the creature he goes in reverse and speaks to the creature in judgment to Eve and her judgment and then to Adam and what he's signifying there is you have disrupted the order that I put in place from the very beginning and that has caused an unraveling so leadership in the church is about trusting God and his purposefulness for creative order trusting him that God we believe you know best we believe your instructions are right and regardless of what the culture is doing we're going to hold true to your word that's where this church must be now let me give some sort of concluding thoughts here the culture pulls society like a double flag rip current and unless the church remains anchored to the bible we will be pulled dangerously away from God's will and God's way so you and I regardless of what the culture is doing we must be anchored right here regardless of how the current is flowing outside these doors outside of this group of people we have to be anchored here in our families and in our church life and our personal lives we have to be determined to do that so God's order of leadership comes in the from the church how he created things in creation so we must be submissively obedient to him so the structure of Meadowbrook must in every way be as God has prescribed it to be not as the culture demands it to be not as the culture expects it to be but what God has ordered it to be I'm grateful to the insights of Kent Hughes who is a commentator that I've read extensively uh, specifically in this book and in his commentary he makes some pretty crucial points about God's mandates for pastors and elders and if you allow me to I'm just going to summarize several pages I'm going to summarize them in about three statements this command is not about male or female superiority I don't think and Paul doesn't think in any way that men are superior to women when it comes to leading if we were going to be honest with each other women are typically smarter than men if you looked at the ACT scores probably women are going to be higher in their scores than their male classmates women have a superior intellect oftentimes women are better communicators and it's probably because men don't communicate altogether but women are better communicators and they are wildly more intuitive aren't they they have insights and perceptions that men just don't get so if you're thinking about leadership and you're thinking about superiority men are not the superiors women would often be pointed as more wise more knowledgeable more communicative more perceptive so it's not about superiority and this command about pastors being men it's not about the suitability of leadership either what women often prove in the things of God to excel they often read the Bible more they often pray more and they often are in attendance to church more so it's not about the suitability for leadership 
The command of leaders being men is not about men having power over women. In the Bible, leadership is always about dying to self. Have you noticed that? Leadership is always about servanthood. It's not about uh, having an authoritative position over, power over. No, we're to be like Jesus as leaders. We are to lay our lives down for the sheep. It's not about a power position. It's about a humble position. So this is not about men having power over women. The command is about being as significant as possible for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, context, context, context. What this entire chapter is about is to be more excellent in the pursuit of the gospel. And God is saying that I have an order in the church regarding leadership that if you'll follow me on this, you'll have more order in your progressiveness towards the gospel. You'll have a greater expanse of the gospel. You'll share the gospel more. You'll have more gospel impact if you follow my instructions. In other words, doing things God's way brings the results that God intends. And so in this passage... We're going to ask ourselves, Lord, am I willing to do it your way? When all the world wants me to do it another way, am I willing to do it your way? Because you'll bring about the results that you intend if I follow you. And that's where we're just going to have to settle. Just trusting God that he has purpose in his creative order and establishing the rule and the leadership for his church. So men... Be encouraged to pray everywhere. Have and raise holy hands to the Lord. Don't be argumentative and don't be quick to be angry. Be known as somebody who has been reconciled to God and others and live out that reconciliation. Women, if you claim a possession of godliness, it ought to be demonstrated in the clothes you choose to wear. How you present yourself is either moving people to you or to Jesus. Present yourself well in how your demeanor is and the good works that you do. And to the church, he's saying, make sure that you understand my creative order and follow the instruction in that order. If you do so, you'll be much more effective and the gospel will flourish. I want us all to be found faithful in that, to be given to the things of God in that, and to trust him for the results. Now let's pray together. So Lord, I pray now that your word as it has been read and understood brings honor and glory to you as your people submit ourselves to you fully. Let there not be a rebellious way in us let us humbly submit ourselves to you and move towards you in this. And Lord, where we have moved away, where we've thought differently and where we've acted differently and maybe even communicated differently, forgive us. For we know that you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess our sin. And then Lord, set us on the right path through this word. Empower this word to be alive in us by your Holy Spirit. Let the gospel be on the forefront and let it be evident in every way about us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.